If you have your Bibles, grab them. We're going to continue in our series in the book of John. We'll be in John chapter 10 today. John chapter 10. If you haven't seen the movie uh, 12 Angry Men, you should go back and watch it because it's incredible. The, if, you, if you don't know the story, the movie 12 Angry Men takes place uh, in the past, and it's about a young black man who was on trial for being accused of stabbing and murdering his father. And after the trial, the jury convenes, and most of the movie takes place uh, back in this little room with the jury, uh, where they have to decide the verdict of this young man, and they take their initial vote, and it is 11 to 1 guilty as charged. You know, sometimes, as you would see in this room, you can, we can be so convinced of the truth. We can be so convinced that we know what the truth is and yet be so wrong. Because the boy in this movie was innocent. And yet he was voted to be guilty 11 to 1. But it took one brave man, one brave man who would stand against the crowd to stand for truth, no matter how unpopular it was, and begin to reason with the other jurors throughout the course of the movie as to why the evidence actually pointed to the young man's innocence instead of his guilt. And throughout the movie, one by one, all of the jurors begin to see the truth and slowly change their votes from guilty to not guilty. See, every day, people in your life put Jesus on trial. And very often, it is you and you alone, you are the only person who can stand against the, tr- against the crowd and point to the truth. That's what we'll see in our text this morning, John chapter 10, the words of our God, written by the apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, starting in verse 22, say this. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not, be- do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. 
Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again, crossed the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. There he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 22 gives us the setting of this story. It says, it was wintertime, and Jesus was in the temple, and it was during what they called the Feast of Dedication. Now, if you went and looked in the Old Testament for what they were celebrating at this feast, this Feast of Dedication, you would look throughout the Old Testament, and you would find nothing. You would find no uh, event by which they would celebrate this thing called the Feast of Dedication. The event actually takes place in what is called the intertestamental period, that is, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. See, the Feast of Dedication is remembering a time when the enemies of Israel tried to take over Jerusalem, and in their attempt to do that, they desecrated the temple. They ruined the temple. And so, uh, a group of men led by this guy named, uh, with the last name Maccabee took the temple back and rededicated the temple to the Lord. And so this feast that they're celebrating is looking back at a reflection of this time where they rededicated to God and rededicated the temple. It's still observed today by Jews. However, it is no longer known as the Feast of Dedication. Instead, it is known as Hanukkah. Good job. The setting is ironic. Because as the Jewish people should have been rededicating themselves to the Lord and remembering his provision and mercy toward them, The manifestation of the Lord's provision and mercy was quite literally right in front of them. And yet they rejected him, yet they miss him. They miss God's very son. Instead of rededicating and refocusing their hearts as the whole feast was meant to do, they unwittingly and unknowingly put God on trial. Verse 24 says, and so the Jews gathered around them. It's interesting, the Greek word that's used there is only used four times throughout the Bible, and uh, two of those times it is describing an an, uh, invading army that is encircling their enemies. And by the context, context, that is exactly what is happening here. The Jews come into the temple, they find Jesus, and they encircle him. They're preparing a trap for him. They want there to be no place to go. They box him in, they corner him in. Their aim is to put Jesus on trial. You see, they have one question for Jesus. And if he answers this question in the way that they suspect he's going to answer it, they will have him physically and legally trapped, and they will finally be able to legally put him to death and end Jesus' ministry once and for all and get things back to how they should be going in their minds. But these men, they don't show their hand. See, they come to Jesus as all wolves in sheep clothing come, they, they come and they look and they sound genuine. They come and they look and they sound genuine. They present themselves as true seekers with mind and heart open, ready to believe. But we know better. See, in verse 24, he says, they, they say to Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? See, they present themselves like eagerly wanting to know the truth. Oh, Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That's the trap. The hook is in the water. The trap is set. And now they wait for Jesus to respond. 
See, they put Jesus on trial, and they are eager to convict him. They have cunningly and deceptively asked the first question of the trial, and with that question comes the accusation. See, these men are not confused at all. Don't be mistaken. They're not confused by what or who Jesus is claiming to be. They know exactly what Jesus has been saying this whole time. And we know that because they say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Right? They know Jesus, what he's been claiming. They know he's been claiming to be the Christ. They say, listen, stop. Stop talking in riddles. Stop talking in weird ways. Just say yes or no. Are you the Christ? Now, remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. In case you didn't know that. The word Christ is the Greek way of saying the Hebrew word Messiah. And so Christ and Messiah are the same word, and they mean the anointed one. The anointed one, or the Christ, or the Messiah, was the one that was foretold in the Old Testament who would come to set God's people free. And so these Jews were not actually curious if Jesus was this man that they had been waiting for. See, they knew they knew that Jesus had been claiming to be the Messiah, but he had not directly come out and just said those words publicly, so they couldn't really convict him of it. In fact, Jesus had only said it to one person throughout the entire Gospel of John. He'd only come out to one person to say, I am the Messiah. And do you remember who that was in John chapter 4? But it was this woman at the well that no one wanted, no one cared about, this sinner to that person that Jesus was clear as could be with. You see, Jesus had not called himself the Messiah publicly because that word Messiah had begun to take on a wrong understanding of what the scriptures actually foretold about him. See, the Jews believed the Messiah was going to come to liberate them from Roman occupation, that he would come and lead an army with a sword in his fist and he would take on the Romans and push them out and make Israel the strong and mighty nation it was always meant to be. So that's what they were looking for. Ironically, Jesus did come to defeat an enemy, just not the one they were expecting, but the one they needed. See, Jesus had not come out and said the right words for the Jews to accuse him. And so they would try to set this trap. Stop talking in riddles. Stop talking in parables. Stop being cute, Jesus. Stop stop doing all that and be clear. Give us a yes or no. Are you the Messiah? See, here's their accusation. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah because, as we go back to John, he had forgiven people's sins. He had healed people on the Sabbath. He claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be the Son of God. And the biggest problem of all is that he challenged these religious leaders' understanding of the Bible And if Jesus really was the Messiah in their minds, he would have been on their team, not against them. If Jesus really was the Messiah, he would have been for them, and he wouldn't have done all these other things. He wouldn't have said he was God or being equal with God. He wouldn't have done all of those things. He wouldn't have forgiven sins. He wouldn't have broken the Sabbath, broken their rules and traditions. But you see, we find a Jesus that did not value what they valued, and so in their mind, he must not be the Messiah. If Jesus doesn't value what I value, he must not be legit. He must not be the man. And is that not what happens today? Is that not what happens in the world today? But that, the, that people put Jesus on trial and don't believe in him because they say, Jesus doesn't value what I value. He doesn't stand for what I think he should stand for. 
He isn't the kind of Jesus I would believe in. I would believe in a Jesus that's more like this or that. How arrogant is it of us that we would choose whether or not to believe in Jesus and follow him based on whether or not Jesus stands for what we think he should stand for? You see, the natural stance of the world, the natural posture of the world is to oppose the things of God. So we naturally, we naturally oppose the things of God and think God should be about what we're about. See, your friends and your family and your coworkers and your neighbors put Jesus on trial and they accuse him of being too judgmental, of being just a good teacher, of not being God, of someone raising from the dead is impossible. They say, uh, you know, I can't believe in Jesus. He's too old-fashioned. I can't believe in Jesus. He's too exclusive. I can't believe in Jesus. He's too strict. The list goes on and on of the things people accuse Jesus of. People are born with this natural bent against the things of God, and so it is no wonder they want to put Jesus in a courtroom and condemn him. Because here's the thing. If people can condemn him, they can ignore him. And if they can ignore Jesus, they can continue to live their lives exactly as they please. Which is exactly what these Jewish leaders wanted. They wanted their power and their traditions. They wanted their way of life back. They wanted Jesus to stop meddling, to stop changing, to stop contradicting them. So they accused Jesus and they're ready to put him to death for claiming to be the Messiah. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that the one the Jews had been waiting for for thousands of years, the one that their neighbor, or the one that our neighbors and coworkers desperately need in their life, is right in front of them, right within their grasp, and they can't see him. They can't see the truth. It, what a sad and amazing thing to miss that which you need most, and to not just miss it, but to judge it and put it on trial. And what an absurd notion that we, those created by God, could put God on trial as if we had any power to tell him what he should be like. See, they put Jesus on trial. They accuse him of being in the wrong. But then we've got to see the defense. That's their accusation. But how does Jesus defend himself? In 1483, there was a a man named Martin who was born. And Martin uh, was one day uh, walking home and a, a big storm came uh, and in 19, or in, in, in 1483, um, you know, storms are probably scarier, I guess. And he's running for his life, and there's lightning, and he thinks he's going to die. And he, say, he prays, God, if you save my life, I will become a monk. And he didn't die, and so he became a monk. And uh, Martin became this monk, and he, he learned and studied the Bible and uh, became a priest and all these things and, uh, and, and did all these things in the monastery. And then one day... He got an opportunity to go and be a professor. So he was going to be a professor, and he began to study the Bible and teach the Bible. He was teaching in the book of Galatians, and the book of Romans, the book of Psalms. And Martin became convinced that the things the church was teaching about how we're saved were wrong. And so he, he thought, you know what, we've got to fix some of these things. And so he, he wrote a paper, and he went, and he, as was common in the day, nailed it to the church door. Well, the church didn't like that very much. And the church put out a warrant for his arrest, and they came after him, and they wanted to kick him out of the church. They wanted to excommunicate him. So they bring him to trial. Here is Martin standing in front of all of these uh, 
people and the, these priests and all these cardinals and, and all these things. And they have this table. And on this table are all of his writings and books that he had written. And the person presiding over the trial looks at him and he says, you must recant and recount all of these writings. And Luther says, which ones? Which ones should I recant? Surely you can't mean all of them. And the judge looks at him and he says, we will have no trickery here, no legal trickery here. He kind of says the same thing that the Jews say here, speak plainly. Don't try to wiggle your way out of this. You must recant or be excommunicated. And then Martin Luther said this, his famous line, here I stand, I can do no other. Jesus on trial, surrounded by his enemies, they're ready to stone him. And what is Jesus' defense? You'll see, it's basically going to be, here I stand, I can do no other. Verse 25, he says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Martin Luther, 1,500 years later, would stand and say, here I stand, I can do no other. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, I've already told you. I've spoken all the things that I'm going to speak. I've done all of these works. I've been very, very clear about who I am and what I've come to do. You do not need to ask me. You already know the answer. He's saying, look, I turned water into wine. I taught with authority. When there were money changers in the temple, I cleansed them out. I got rid of them, cleansed the temple, and said, if you tear it down, I'll rebuild it in three days. I've healed people. I have I've healed lame and made the blind see, made the deaf hear. I've walked on the water and calmed storms. I, have took, I took some fish and bread and fed over 15,000 people with it. I have told you I'm the bread of life and that before Abraham was, I am. And I've done all many, many more of these things. I'm not hiding who I am. You just don't want to see it or believe it. I am who I am. I've been abundantly clear, but you have been looking for the wrong thing. Jesus stands on what he says. He says, look at my works. I'm not going to get up here and argue with you. I'm not going to try to persuade you. I have been abundantly clear. Here I stand, I can do no other. Notice, Jesus does not backtrack his claims. Here are men, they are, remember they've encircled him, they've picked up stones, they're ready to kill him. And Jesus doesn't backtrack. Jesus doesn't say, okay guys, you know, listen, you know, maybe I was a little intense and, and, and you know guys, when, when, I know I was a little harsh with you, but I really like you. I think you guys are great, and, and we can work this out. He doesn't say, you know, before when I said before Abraham was, I am, you know, that was probably a little much. Let's, let's take that back, okay? Not a big deal there. You, you know, all of this, me and the Father are one stuff. What I mean by that is that, you know, God's agenda and my agenda are the same. We want to do the same thing. That's what I meant by that. See, Jesus will have none of that. Jesus is not trying to go back through his record and clean it up and make it pretty for them. He will have none of that. He says, my works point to who I am. And the reason you do not believe them is because you're not my sheep. My works point to who I am. You know, it'd be kind of like this. It'd be kind of like this. It'd be kind of like, imagine um, uh, Picasso. Okay, and Picasso, this famous painter. It's, imagine Picasso goes back and he's in a kindergarten art class. And he gets his grade from kindergarten art class and he gets an F. 
And he would go to his teacher and be like, spread out all his masterpieces out before his teacher. For which one of these are you failing me? It doesn't make sense. For which of my works are you judging me? For which of my works don't make sense? Which of my works don't point to who I am? How do you not clearly see that I am who I am? Like I've literally healed people and walked on the water and stopped storms and fed thousands of people. Turned water around. How do you not see? You don't see because you're not my sheep. You're not my sheep so you don't hear my voice when I call. Like this man that I just healed that was blind, you are spiritually blind and can't see the truth. Jesus is unwilling to soften his teaching. He's unwilling to soften the truth. He's unwilling to water down his message. He's unwilling to compromise. He's unwilling to make his message more palatable so that they might believe in him. Guys, this is important for us to understand today in 2020 in Cincinnati, Ohio, because as church and as people who want to see family and friends and coworkers come to know Christ, because almost every one of us in this room have people in our life who do not believe in the gospel, don't believe in Jesus, and we desperately want them to. And we're almost willing to do anything to get them to believe. And churches in our community and around the world desperately want lost people to get saved, and we do too. But the problem is, unlike Jesus' stand here where he's uncompromising, unwavering, and unmoving, there's a temptation for us and an effort to reach the lost, to compromise on the truth. Even in one-on-one conversations, it is e- an easy temptation for us to say, we need to make Jesus more palatable. We need to make Jesus easier to swallow. So let's start belittling things like, let's not talk so much about wrath and justice. Let's talk more about love and mercy. And in so doing, we actually belittle his love and belittle his mercy by removing his justice on the cross. We might say, you know what, I understand the resurrection might be a hard thing for you to grasp, so let's just not go there right now. You might say, I know trusting the Bible may be a hard thing to grasp, but let's not go there right now. We don't want people to feel uncomfortable. We don't want people to feel judged. And so, you know what? Let's just not talk about sin. Before you know it, there is no remnant of the gospel left. Churches, in an effort to reach people, begin to water down the truth, begin to do everything to make it feel more comfortable. We want people to feel comfortable. Don't get me wrong. But we cannot remove the offensiveness of the gospel. We have churches who want to stop playing music about Jesus and start playing just secular music so people are comfortable. We have churches who stop preaching the Bible and just preach on movies. Literally churches who just have sermon series based on movies. People may come into the door, but in watering down the message, we lose the very message that would save them. the world will put Jesus on trial and will accuse him again and again. But Jesus needs no defending. We don't make Jesus more palatable. We don't defend his claims as if they needed a defense. We, like Jesus, simply stand and point and say, what that guy said is true. His words and his work speak for themselves. You see, every day the world puts Jesus on trial. Your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors are putting Jesus on trial. And they are looking to you, looking to you to say, what do you say about this Jesus of Nazareth? 
And in our defense of Jesus, we never retract from what he said. We never, in an effort to make Jesus more palatable or believable, remove something that might be offensive. The gospel is offensive. We might try to persuade, we might try to reason with them, we might try to convince them of the truth, but at the end of the day, we do what Martin Luther would later say. We share the gospel, we pray, and we go to sleep knowing our Father is working. See, knowing Jesus' is sheep, when we know Jesus, his sheep will hear his voice. The reason you don't hear is because you're not his sheep. Notice this, Jesus is not intimidated by these men encircling him. He's not intimidated by the arguments they might make against him today. Verse 37, I love this. Think about this with me. He says, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. Isn't that interesting? If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. It takes confidence to make that statement. Jesus is so confident that he is in the right, that he is telling him, test my works Judge my works. Judge everything about me. And in the end, you will find that I am who I said I am. See, Jesus is confident in who he is, and our confidence should be in that too. I often tell people when they go to college, do not be afraid of the questions. When they go to college and they're, and they're going to take all different kinds of classes, they're going to have professors who don't believe and professors who are going to try to break them down, break their foundation, and get them to recant on their faith. I say, listen, do not be afraid of any question. Christianity has the best answers to every question in the world. And so do not go in there thinking, oh, you gotta, I just got a blind faith. Go in there and say, bring it on. Because I'm not afraid that I don't have the truth. Bring it on. Christianity has the best answers. And if it doesn't, do not believe in it. If Christianity is not, does not have the best answers, do not believe in it. You see, I can say that because my confidence is that in Jesus is the truth. I'm not afraid of any question or any argument or any accusation someone might throw at Jesus. The truth will remain no matter how closely you look at it or examine it or question it. Jesus isn't afraid. Here I stand. I can do no other. Look at what I've said. Look what I've done. Test it. It's the truth. So we don't water down the message. We don't water down Jesus. We don't water down what he claimed to make it easier for people. Because his sheep will hear his voice and they will follow. So the trial continues. We've heard the accusation. We've heard Jesus' defense. But the question is, what is the verdict? Well, quite simply, the verdict is up to you. This group of men try to stone Jesus. That doesn't work. They try to arrest him. That doesn't work. Jesus gets away. The group, however, doesn't change their mind. They've not opened their minds and their hearts to believe. Because Jesus said, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. But listen to how this story ends. Verse 40. Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. See, here are a people who have not seen Jesus perform miracle after miracle. They had not seen Jesus perform these wonders. You know what they got? Words. They heard John the Baptist tell them about Jesus. They heard Jesus come finally and talk. 
And they said everything that John said about him is true. And they believed. You know why that's fascinating? Paul would later write in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Do you know why people believe in Jesus? It's not because of signs and wonders, and it's not because you made it easy. It's not because you removed the hard parts. It's not because you watered it down. They believe because they heard. They believe because they listened and heard the word of Christ. They heard the gospel shared with them, and then they were his sheep, and so they heard his voice and they followed. The seminary I went to, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I don't know when it started. Somewhere in the 50s, 60s, 70s. It was the most liberal institution, biblical institution in the world. There was literally atheists on staff teaching Bible college. They didn't believe the Bible. They didn't believe the resurrection was true. They didn't believe the miracles were true. They didn't believe that Jonah really happened. I mean, you name it, they didn't believe it. Because it was easier. Easier for people to come into the faith if you don't make the hard things true. You know what? If we say, you know what? Don't worry about the miracles. We'll just say the miracles weren't really true. They were just more like parables. Then it'll be easier for people to believe. Oh, that resurrection. There's literally an offshoot of Southern Baptist, Cooperative Baptist, who literally don't believe the resurrection actually happened. They believed it. It's just figurative. And it's easier for people. But when you remove the hard things, you remove the very message that can save people. So what does Paul say about the resurrection? If it didn't happen, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. We are to be pitied most among men. We don't remove the offense. But when you hear the word of Christ, when people hear it, when his sheep hear it, they will follow. When they hear his voice, they will follow. Two questions to ask yourself this morning. One, have you defended Jesus to your family and your friends, your neighbors and your coworkers by pointing them again and again and again to the truth? And and, and let me be clear. What I don't mean is is we don't care about people's feelings. We want to stand for the truth. and, And if that hurts your feelings, I don't care. That's not what we're saying. We don't walk with a swagger. We walk with a limp and humility. I mean, have you come to people in love and kindness and graciousness? pointed them in gentleness again to the transformed life that Jesus has given to you and pointed to his truth, pointed to why it's true, pointed to believe it. Have you done that? Maybe you're here today and you would say to me, Brent, there are people in my life who accuse Jesus of things. They put Jesus on trial, but I have been silent. And I know I need to speak to those around me and point them to the truth, even when it's hard. Maybe this morning you need to come up here and pray for courage and boldness so that you can stand against the crowd. See, because sometimes, like 12 angry men, it takes one strong, courageous person to stand against the crowd, to stand for truth. And maybe when you think that nobody would turn, no one would believe in you, you will find that God will open the eyes of the blind and that those who were once convinced they were in the right will see the error of their ways and come to believe the truth. If they hear it. There's some of you in this room, and you have put Jesus on trial. 
but you haven't yet casted a verdict. And the question that you need to answer today, right now, is how do you find the defendant? How do you find him? Innocent or guilty? You are either for him or against him. You are either his sheep or not. But you must decide. But I'll tell you this. If you come to Jesus, you will find that he is exactly who he said he was. You will find that he will never leave you or forsake you when times get hard. You will find that he will never lose you. You will find that he will never fail you. You will find that he is good and worthy of your belief, worthy of you following. He will make you his. And once you're his, you're his forever. Come and believe. Taste and see the Lord is good. Let's pray. God, this morning, there are things in your word, there are things about the gospel that are hard to swallow sometimes. It's hard to swallow that we are sinners and deserve hell. It is hard to swallow that we are sinners and deserve the righteous justice of a sovereign good God. It is hard to swallow that you raised your son from the dead. It might be hard to swallow that he performed miracles. It might be hard to swallow that God became a man, that God, very God, became a man, became a single-cell organism in a mother's womb and grew and became a baby and became a teenager and grew into a man. And that man died on a cross and the wrath of God was poured out onto that man who was God. And that man died that my sin might be forgiven and he was raised from the dead. That might be hard to believe, that might be offensive, that might be difficult. But what we know, Father, is that when your sheep hear your voice, when your sheep hear that word, they come and they believe. That's what your word says. And so we put our hope in that. So God, if there are anyone in this room who hears their name being called in their heart right now, there's anyone in this room who has not believed you, has not cast a verdict, but has put you on trial. But today they say, you know what? Maybe Jesus is who he said he was, and I want to give him a chance. I want to believe. I want to follow. God, give him the courage to do that. And if there's anyone in this room who would say, you know what, Brent? I know that the world and my family, my friends and my coworkers and my neighbors have put Jesus on trial. That they don't believe, and they're looking to me to convince them that he is who he said he was. Help me to stand and say, look, I'm not going to water it down. I'm not going to sugarcoat. I'm not going to make it easier for you. But it's true. It's all true. Every bit of it's true. And if you believe it, it'll change your life. God, give us the courage and the boldness to go into our communities and our homes and our neighborhoods and our jobs and to share this message. Give us the boldness and the courage to do that. God, give us the courage to respond right now. Maybe in this moment you need to stand and sing a little louder. Maybe in this moment you need to come up here and get on your knees and say, God, give me the boldness because I need to stand for the truth in my job and I haven't been doing a good job at that. Maybe you're here this morning and you would say, Brent, I've not believed, but I want to. There's people up here and I'm up here. We would love to show you how to do that. Whatever the Spirit would tug at your heart to do, listen to him. Trust him and follow him. God, give us the courage. In Christ's name we pray all people said. Stand and sing.